0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. T-minus one week and the midterms landscape is far from settled. The Republicans seem to have consolidated overall gains in the last few weeks, but most polls remain well within the margin of error and their baked-in limitations leave ample room to upset expectations come election day. While Biden and other government officials are crisscrossing the country with the relatively good late-breaking economic news, an uphill battle given the continuing dead weight of inflation and gas prices, other Democrats try to break through the political cacophony with warnings of the consequences in store for the country should Republicans take either house of Congress. Democracy is on the ballot, they scream. But can that sort of message be heard over the Republicans' refrain of inflation, immigration, and crime? The warnings about the election's broader stakes are not simply campaign rhetoric. There's strong reason to fear that Republicans, hundreds of whom are running state and federal races on professed belief in the big lie, would use the legislative power they gain in the midterms to undermine long-standing features of American society and launch a course of meritless investigations of Biden, Merrick Garland, and Democrats in general. All with an eye toward advancing their chances to take the White House back in 2024. Their toxic rule could only further the breakdown in civil society, That had perhaps its most vivid illustration last week with the brutal attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband by a hammer wielding political extremist shouting, Where's Nancy? Playing into all these difficult calculations is the overall wild card of Donald Trump, who seems to be in a race himself between an announcement for candidacy for president and an indictment for obstruction. To call the race as it heads to the wire virtually neck and neck, touching on its connections to the legal threats against the former president, we welcome three of the most savvy and knowledgeable political commentators in the country, and they are Susan Glasser, an award-winning journalist and news editor. She's a staff writer at the New Yorker, where she writes the weekly column on life in Washington. She served as the top editor of several Washington-based publications, most recently founding Politico magazine, where she was the editor throughout the 2016 election cycle. She's written several books, including the brand new The Divider with her husband, Peter Baker, which we're really excited to be doing as a Talking Books event next month in Los Angeles. Last but not least, it's her first time to Talking Fed. Susan Glasser, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Ah, Thanks for having me.
0: Joe Lockhart, not his first time, I'm happy to say, the managing director at the PR firm Rational 360. He is one of the top communications and public affairs professionals in the country. Frequently, you see him on TV. He was press secretary under President Clinton from 1998 to 2000, and before that, to a number of other prominent officials. He founded the communications consulting firm Glover Park Group. He's worked for Facebook, the NFL, and many others. Joe, thanks very much for returning to Talking Feds. Glad
2: to be here. Glad to
0: always come back. Josh Marshall. A journalist, blogger, and the founder of Talking Points Memo, which in 2007 became the first and only blog to win the George Polk Award for Legal Reporting, and which I can say first introduced me to the art of blogging and which I still think of as really unparalleled in the country. But Josh's writing also has been widely featured in many leading national publications, and he hosts the excellent Josh Marshall podcast, where he provides insight into the big political stories of the day. Always feel lucky to be able to welcome him to Talking Feds, especially on such a critical week. Thanks a lot for returning, Josh Marshall. Thanks for having me. All right. So we are staring down the barrel of the midterms, which are next week. Last week on this podcast, we talked about the shift toward the Republicans, at least in the generic ballot. I guess let's start there. As of last week, the Dems' fortunes had sort of turned. Did they do anything substantial
3: to shake up the dynamic in the last week? I think we're kind of late enough in the cycle where there's not a lot you can do to shake things up. Things get shaken up, often for reasons that are just very hard to suss out. I think one of the things that I always try to remind people is that in the last two, three, four weeks before an election, you have a small but significant part of the electorate that is tuning in for the first time. And so, what can seem like some sudden break to one side or the other isn't necessarily a break in the sense of anything changing. It is a portion of the electorate just kind of dialing in to the election. And that is a you know relatively small part of the electorate kind of at this stage in our politics. But by definition, it's the people who are up for grabs, right? The people who have been watching constantly for the last year, they're committed So I think there are things that Democrats did not do earlier that they are paying some price for. But I think we're in, my read is we are in that stage of the campaign where it's just sort of a sprint. And I'm not sure that anything either side is doing in an overt political sense is making that big a difference.
0: So let me just ask to follow up. That suggests, and it's always been a sort of electorate on a nice edge, that there may be people not through any strength or discovery of either party who will still be in play because they're just checking in. I wonder, Susan and have if you have thoughts about that, and if I can just put a finer point on it, do you consider that the House is now out of reach?
1: Well, I think Josh's point is an excellent one. By definition, anybody who's undecided in this climate of, you know, People having pretty fixed views might have less focus on politics to begin with. The converse is also true, though, which is that there's so much more early voting and mail-in voting. There are millions of people who have already cast ballots. So the premise of a late surge or a late change in message by the parties, and, and, and you see stories every day this week that our Democrats will now focus on this or, you know, Biden is now making a last approach to talk about Social Security and Medicare. Well, that's irrelevant to the millions of votes that are already one way or the other now accounted for. So, you know, I think it's really almost a voting period that we now really have in the United States as opposed to a voting day, which doesn't necessarily cut in favor of either party. I would point out as to the more general question about, well, is the House just out of reach for Democrats? Let's put it this way that were Democrats to keep the House at this point, that would be a significant upsetting of the expectations game, certainly.
2: Yeah, I'm probably less in the doom and gloom group for Democrats, and I'm the only partisan (laughs) on this call or professional politician. I think there are so many variables in this race that it's really hard to understand who's going to vote. And the variables are the Dobbs decision. How much does that motivate people? The attack on democracy, that is the number one issue among Democrats in the state of New York. The rate of inflation, which people feel, and Trump's name not being on the ballot. Again, all of these things I think are so hard to model. And if the pollsters get it right this time, they've done incredible work. The track record of the last few elections has not been incredible. So, I agree with everything that Josh and Susan said on messaging. I think from the beginning, Democrats were late on inflation. There's a couple of Democrats I think now who are using a message and the question is, is it too late, that I think could work, which is that culture wars, banning abortion does nothing to impact inflation. Getting rid of gay marriage does nothing, but that's very late in the game. and. Whether that will have an impact or not, I'm skeptical of. But the only reason I'm not willing to go to uh, the top of a tall building and jump off at this point is I don't know who's going to vote. I'll make a broader point. Every election we have, somebody says it's the most important election in the history of our country. Now, that can't possibly be true. But I think this might be the most predictive election that we've seen about where the country is going. You have a very short-term economic pain that people are feeling versus very fundamental rights, the right to have an abortion, the right to have your vote counted for democracy to mean something. And I think if inflation overwhelms those two fundamental issues, and we have people like Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker in the Senate, that is a big step towards the failure of democracy. We've seen many steps already, former President Trump being sort of the instigator. But that would be, for me, that, that would be a takeaway from, I guess, what people are expecting, which is a big day for Republicans.
0: One quick follow up to all of you. So you've put your finger, or sort of your fingers, on what I take to be separate rhetorical strategies. So Donna Brazil on the democracy point said, to the extent it's a referendum on Biden and Washington, Dems lose. The only way it works out otherwise is for the electorate to grasp that democracy itself is on the ballot. Susan, you wrote uh, you know, about the possibility that there are untold ranks of especially, not only, but especially women who are going to come forward in midterms in protest or fear of the Dobbs decision. And then, of course, the White House is on the hustings, Biden and emissaries all over the country talking about pretty good manufacturing results and jobs, et cetera. Now... Is that fine? Is it, you know, if you were the, the god of the Democratic Party, and I know nobody here will apply for that job, <laughs> would you want to wrangle them in a way that coalesced around one or another of these fairly different themes? And as you've just said, Joe, kind of short range versus long range, or do you think it's fine for all three of these tones to be sounded in these last days?
1: Well, you know, I think it's a confusing message to the extent you can call it a single message. I was struck. I listened to all of Biden's campaigning last week, and there was this sort of technocratic approach, a kind of all things to all people. Hey, we've done a lot. We've passed these bills, infrastructure. You know, it had a sort of bridge to the 21st century (laughs) quality to it. And it's hard to imagine that that's really uh, what... People, even potentially partisan Democrats, want to hear from the president right now. If there's so much discontent, it's really hard to go out there with a, hey, we've passed a lot of bills that don't necessarily address the thing you're upset about, but hey, you know, we've been working hard for you. On the abortion thing and the turnout there, I do think there's this sort of, but what about Kansas kind of hope. And in general, I would say that's right now. I saw an Israeli analyst was talking about their upcoming election in which Benjamin Netanyahu looks like he may be making a comeback and and wrote about the phenomenon of election dread. And it seems to me that right now we're in the kind of election dread slash uncertainty phase where it's like hurtling towards some kind of disaster and people are just waiting for something, but they don't even know what the thing is per se <laughs> that might avoid it. Maybe it'll be abortion. Maybe it'll be you know some terrible realization that actually democracy is on the line or that there will be 300 election denialists in Congress. I don't think that kind of generic hopefulness is, is proven to be all that successful in the last few years. It, it has the feel of that kind of deus ex machina Uh, hope about Donald Trump, that there was going to be this uh, transformative moment, this accountability moment that would come and he would get dragged off the scene and, you know, into the orange jumpsuit or whatever.
2: You know, I think if you look at what Democrats are doing, if you watch the ads in the Senate races and the congressional races, you'll see what they think is working and not working. I thought Biden gave an incredibly strong speech defending democracy now about a month ago. Uh, And Susan's right. It's now about accomplishments. And Susan, I will not take bridge to the 21st century personally. (laughs) That's going back into the playbook. But it doesn't have the power that defending democracy has. But I'll say this. Around the country, if you talk to media consultants, they all shifted away from abortion about a month ago and went to the economy. They didn't do that because they all just happened to have the same crazy idea at the same moment. So they were looking at polling and the consensus was we've got to move back to the economy as i've said before i'm skeptical of the polling but democrats have left themselves in a position where they haven't made a consistent argument over the long term they've shifted and generally those with a consistent message do better than those you know who are shifting
0: I mean, it could be also they're following the polls because my I, I believe in the summer and when they were kind of bucking the odds, the voters were mentioning democracy as well as gun control and abortion, and those very factors I think have receded, you know, in recent polls. And of course, the Republicans are pounding the table on immigration, crime, and inflation. Josh, thoughts about like even the ability of an electorate, any electorate, but let's say, oh, the U.S. electorate in 2022 to be moved by what sure seems to me and maybe everyone here to be transcendent, most important values, but we're told regularly that they're drowned out by immediate pocketbook issues. So often I go back to Reconstruction or Civil War. I know you're a history buff in these days. And you do think that people were voting on transcendent or national values. Is that just not something you can expect the electorate
3: to be doing? I guess the thing to me is that we we can't think of a thing, the electorate. We have maybe, you know, 45 percent of the electorate that is going to be voting on the degradation of rights in this country, the threats against democracy, you know, all that kind of stuff. We're talking about a very small portion of the electorate that is in play here. So it doesn't make sense to me to kind of, you know, the public can't rise to the challenge sort of argument. And I guess I would also say that we are often too literal about how people think about issues in an election. You know, you mentioned before inflation, crime, various social issues. I think for the right, those are really one big issue, which is a general disorder in society that is very threatening and frightening. You know, we talk about crime. In most respects, crime has not gone up in any significant way since the pandemic. But it has in some respects. You know, I was just looking recently at the crime statistics in New York City. It's where I live. You know, I was just kind of curious. And to me, the, the fundamental crime is always murder, right, in many different levels, not just foundationally, but also in terms of knowing whether it's going up or down. Some crimes don't, don't get reported. When someone's murdered, you know there's a body. You have to account for it in some way. Violent crime, murder, assault, you know, stuff like that is flat hasn't really gone anywhere. Burglary hasn't. Robbery hasn't. But certain kinds of grand larceny, your car getting ripped off, or people going into a store and stealing stuff, that has gone up significantly in the sort of the pandemic era. These are all New York stats? These are New York stats, but they are broadly mirrored, I think, across the country. In this sense that certain kinds of crime have gone up, But other kinds of crime, in some ways the most fundamental ones, again, murder, stuff like that, people breaking into your house, have have not. Obviously, there's variation in different parts of the country. So I think that is what is propelling Republicans right now. This sense that, you know, they used to have those little, you know, snow globe things. It's like someone took Mm -hmm. our Our society society, and just shook it up. And that really is what has happened during and in the aftermath of the pandemic. That affects people. That makes people think that something is fundamentally wrong. Something is going wrong. And that is something politically that an incumbent party has to deal with. And I think, again, at a very basic level, if you are looking at society and seeing that certain core things that you have to buy all the time have become more expensive Really quickly, it is inherently difficult for the people who are in charge to say, we didn't do it, but if you elect us again, we'll fix it, right? And, you know, that's kind of true, but that is just inherently a difficult argument to make, (laughs) just on logical principles. If you're kind of bummed about some core things about how things are going, who are you going to take it out on? The people who aren't in power? Again, these are just some kind of fundamental things that I think we have to be uh, realistic about. I mean, I would share some of the—I'm not even sure I would say skepticism about the polls. I think there is uncertainty about the polls. And one thing that I think hangs over every political observer right now is the fact that we have had a couple big elections where the polls were off by a—not a huge, but a significant amount— favoring Republicans, 2016, 2020, 2018 is a little less clear. It's happened twice. Now, if you look in the broad scope of history, it bounces around. You know, polls favor one side, you know, kind of a wrong on one side or another. It's hard to ignore that. It's quite possible if you were to look in retrospect in a few weeks and say, wow, Democrats did better than we thought. I think you could point to some reasons why polls might be underestimating Democratic support. It's also the case that the polls are actually pretty close. But we all assume that they are going to be understating Republican support by maybe two or three percent, and not without some reason. Well, they've also moved is the other thing. Absolutely. No, there's definitely been a move. I would say that there was a significant move maybe two weeks ago to a week ago, and then they seem to kind of settle. But again, a lot of these things are just, you know, kind of they moved and then they stopped moving. A lot of that's just sort of noise. But no, there definitely seems to be a late trend favoring Republicans. And I think there's good reason to think when you look at a lot of races that are basically tied, you say, you know what, I'm going to give that one to the side that seems to have the wind at its back right now, even if nominally the polls are tied. But all of these things, you could look back and say, you know what, that wasn't the case. So there's a decent amount of uncertainty. Nate Silver would be the first to say it. It's true. Yeah. And I think more than is normally the case just with any polling situation. If you look at this, Harry, with a historical
2: perspective, a Republican victory, a red wave should be expected. Right. Tip O'Neill took Ronald Reagan to the cleaners in 1982. And everyone thinks Ronald Reagan's the best politician who was ever alive. Look at Clinton in 1994. Look at Obama in 2010. So there is a structural advantage for the challengers. But again, I come back to my original point is I don't know what the structure is of this electorate. Uh, And that's why I have some uh, question in my mind. The really interesting thing, and this is something that we experienced in the White House with President Clinton, was it was a lot easier when it was divided government. When Democrats were in charge of all three branches, we owned every problem. And if we didn't solve it, we got blamed for it. And all of a sudden, when Newt Gingrich owned some of the problem, we owned Newt Gingrich. And the president was reelected running, you know, going away. So if I'm Democrats, there are there are problems that will exist, particularly on oversight, if the Republicans take the House. But there are also opportunities there. Uh, And it will change the dynamic for the presidential race next time.
3: I would even say there's a good argument that it actually helps the Democrats in 2024.
0: So I spent this week in Washington where people are, you know, specialize in double bank and triple bank analyses. But yeah, that seems to be what the conventional wisdom on the street. So they take the House, do the Republicans, they impeach Merrick Garland, they impeach Joe Biden, et cetera. And they just go too far being Republicans And in 2024, it aids Biden and the Democrats generally. I mean, that does seem like kind of a Panglossian view, you know, that's just where we want to be. But what do you think? And more generally, you know, what should we be hunkering down for in the event the R's at least take the House?
1: I mean, I think "panglossian" is as good a word as any, but that (laughs) scenario, it kind of reminds me of uh, Democrats' approach in certain of the contested races this year to be actually spending money on behalf of the more extreme, even election-denying Republican candidates in hopes of getting extreme candidates. Now, some of those extremists are going to win election. And that has the potential to backfire. We don't know how on how big of a scale, but that has the potential to backfire on Democrats. And it just, it reminds me in general of some of the approach of dealing with Trump that I don't think was very successful necessarily, certainly not necessarily good for the country over the the four years of Trump's presidency. In a way, I think it speaks to our ingrained desire to fit these very Outlier times in American politics into the frame of what we perceive to be at least a more normal uh, status quo before Trump. And that strikes me as quite risky. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's House Republican conference isn't even anything like Newt Gingrich's House Republican conference. And so to therefore project outwards from, hey, well, you know, Newt won the House in 1994 and it was okay. And you know, Bill Clinton got reelected. I've heard that a lot. Um, I was just at a conference here with senior foreign officials who were making that argument to me, because that's what they heard (laughs) in Washington on their visits, the triple bank shot, like, well, won't it be okay? The other factor I think that suggests that's a, a risky analysis to make is the incredible weakness of the Democratic potential field in 2024. You're looking at either Joe Biden running again, who is not only, you know, very unpopular by historical standards, the most unpopular president right now of anyone except for possibly Donald Trump at this point in his tenure. But, you know, if he does choose to run again, he's already the oldest president ever. He would be as old as 86 at the end of a second term in office. Uh, That strikes me as a potentially very weak candidate for Democrats. And yet there's no obvious other candidate. We may be in a situation, especially if Republicans take uh, both houses of Congress, where you have Donald Trump announcing his candidacy for president within weeks from now. And so, again, you know, Panglossian strikes me as a polite way of saying um, that is a...
3: Deluded? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave adjectives to you guys. <laughs>
3: Let me push back on a few of those points because I really disagree. Let's take first the issue of, I think it's overstated, but the extent to which Democrats basically ran ads showing that more extremist candidates were more extremist on the thinking that there is a big market for that in a Republican primary electorate. I don't think there is really any way that will backfire on Democrats. First, because I don't think many of them will win— But I think the reason that was the right decision is that Democrats correctly noted that in practice it has not mattered whether you are an election denier when it actually counts and how you vote in Congress versus one that is really over the top about it. They end up voting the same way. The more moderate Republicans also voted on January 6th to try to deny the electoral counts. What we have seen is that the more moderate Republicans, with some very, very small exceptions, all of whom are now gone, end up voting with those people. And I think Democrats made what I believe is the correct judgment that in those cases, it actually did not matter if the more extreme candidate. One, because they end up voting the same way. And I would go down the list with you on all the kind of significant actions, significant votes, that is the case. On the point about, is it actually, you know, work to the benefit of the Democrats in some ways if Republicans win Congress? No one is saying it's the better outcome. Democrats are out there working themselves to death trying to prevent it. But it is also worth noting that, We have two examples of this from relatively recent history, which is the 94 election and the 2010 election, and the Democratic president won re-election in both cases two years later. This isn't a matter of like, it's an unsafe thing to predict. I mean, there are no safe options, I would say, for Democrats or for the country generally right now. We're out there kind of on our own trying to figure out how to save the future of the country. But the idea that Democrats are like, oh, it'll, it'll be fine, I don't see any of that. I think that there's making hard decisions in hard circumstances.
2: You know, I think there's the, the elements of both what you both have just said that are true and that I would certainly agree with. And some of this depends on which chamber the Republicans win if they win. yeah, If it's the House, you're irrelevant to policy if you're in the minority absolutely irrelevant. So all your job is to do is to play politics. That's the only reason they stay. And I think you'll probably see a lot of Democrats, if they lose the House, there'll be a big retirement push because you do have no role. In the Senate, not a lot is going to change. Neither side will have a working majority. I don't see how anyone gets to 60 on any controversial issue. So I don't know that
0: there'll be any significant impact. Are you saying even if the
3: R's take it, you don't think they'll push on the filibuster and, and the like? Kind of doesn't matter. Joe Biden's president. Yeah. He'll veto anything that would have needed 60 votes. Yeah, yeah. And I
2: think when it comes to the Democratic field, you don't have to two years out be the, the candidate that everybody wants. You know, the campaigns matter. And I think back to like 2015, and people talked about what a deep bench the Republicans had. Look, we've got 14 of the best politicians in our party running for president. And Donald Trump kicked all their asses. And, and who would have thought that? In two, I didn't think it in 2015. So is there a consensus strong choice for if Biden doesn't run? No, I don't think there is. But I think there's plenty of time. And I, I've always found, I've done five different campaigns, presidential campaigns in the primaries that one of the ways you gain stature is by winning. When you win Iowa, you gain stature. When you win New Hampshire, you win stature. When you win South Carolina, you're on cover of the magazine. And all of a sudden, you seem bigger, even though six weeks before, you were not. And it's why we do this, you know, and it's why it's interesting to be part of, interesting to cover I agree with Josh. The Democrats don't want to lose, but this will shuffle the deck in a way that at the end, whoever plays it better will benefit in 2024.
3: If I can make one quick point about the Senate, if the Democrats lose the Senate, it'll matter a lot for the federal judiciary because judge confirmations will end, right. A. And if Democrats lose one of the two houses, which is highly likely at this point— they are going to have to deal with the debt ceiling issue during the lame duck session of Congress. Because to Susan's point, the 95-96 Republican House caucus was, you know, statesmanlike compared to what this new caucus. I think the country will go into default if that happens. Because Republicans are basically going to make some sort of bargain like— you have to do these big cuts in Social Security, or you have to turn back the legislation from the last two years. There's gonna be no appetite for that among Democrats. There's gonna be no way to sustain that. And I don't see that House caucus balking. So Democrats, it well, if they can get Cinema and Manchin to agree, which is a very big if, they have it in their power to basically. Eliminate that danger before Republicans come into office. I think on the
2: default, the people who are going to like it the least are the voters. The voters are going to see a government not working. They're going to see the Republicans as the driver of it not working. They're going to see their 401ks plummet even further. The hostage in this is cutting Social Security and Medicare. From a voter's point of view, that sets Democrats up. So I'm not sure I completely understand their
3: thinking. There's plenty of other things they could cut but aren't popular. I agree with your point, Joe. And I agree it'll kind of, in a weird way, help Democrats, but you will still have ended up with the government having a debt default, which will have massive repercussions for the rest of all of our lives.
2: Absolutely. And there's certainly no one in the Democratic Party that wants that to happen. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, of course. And I don't think, I think Republicans, if you gave them a lie detector test, would want that to happen. But I think you're right about their caucus. There are no adults. There are no adults in the room anymore in the Republican Party. And they will do and have promised and will do reckless things because that's what Trump would do. I think that's how they view things, which is Trump is a god and he did it by destroying rather than building. And we very well could see this default. And, you know, as far as a Democrat is concerned, The probably biggest villain in the Republican Party right now to Democrats might become our hero, and it's Mitch McConnell. Because when I say there are no Republicans who are adults, he has shown a record of being an adult when you come to this particular issue.
3: But I don't think he'll have the backing of his caucus. In this narrow sense, I agree with you about McConnell, but he doesn't run the House. Sure. And you need both. Susan, you
0: have any thoughts on this debt ceiling? Issue and whether the Dems are likely to be able to repair it prospectively in a lame duck session?
1: I think Judge is right that if they lose, they're gonna have to try. That's just the bottom line, and and that's what we'll see because they're gonna have to try. Again, I just feel like where we've gotten in trouble as a country over the last few years is people trying to game out and being wrong about what's going to happen. And that in many ways, that was the enabling factor again and again and again for Trump. And I would just say, I don't know, you know, what will happen. And that's part of the point is that none of us really has a good crystal ball at this point. And so trying to sort of self-soothe if you're a Democrat by saying, well, it'll be okay. And we're going to, yeah. you know, like maybe this will be to our benefit. We're in a different kind of political moment is is my only point here with this. And, you know, again and again, you can look at many of the actions that Barack Obama took in 2016 that were mistakes that he might say, that he has said were mistakes, say, in dealing with Russia, because they were based on a false sense of what was going to happen in the future in our politics at a moment when the politics didn't play out. And because Trump and now his entire party are willing to shatter norms, to go where they haven't been willing to go before, I just think that makes us even less able to understand in a clear-cut way what the consequences are certain political outcomes. And I think where people get in trouble is when they kind of have an expectation that, well, you know, this bad outcome will actually be fine because then it will be a good outcome.
0: It's time now for our sidebar feature, which explains a legal or political concept that figures prominently in the news, but isn't necessarily ever explained there. And today we thought it was important to explain a concept that we already explained a few years ago in another sidebar, but is completely front and center in the Trump investigation in Mar-a-Lago, and that is executive privilege. And to read executive privilege, I'm thrilled to welcome Matthew Weiner. An actor, director, producer, writer, and novelist, he's the creator, as everyone knows, of the television series Mad Men, also the Romanoffs, as well as an executive producer and writer of The Sopranos. He's won nine, count them, nine Emmys, seven for Mad Men and two for The Sopranos, as well as three Golden Globe Awards. He also published his first novel Heather, the totality in 2017. Among his many other honors, Matthew was included in Time Magazine's Time 100 as one of the most influential people in the world. I give you Matthew Weiner on Executive Privilege.
4: What is Executive Privilege and what are its limits? Executive Privilege is the right of the President of the United States and other high-ranking executive branch officials to avoid producing certain documents and information to Congress or the courts. The purpose of the privilege is to allow the president to receive candid advice from close advisors without the threat that the information will become public. The Supreme Court has made clear that at least some of the communications are protected under executive privilege, but the scope of the rule is hotly debated, and executive privilege disputes rarely result in judicial decisions. However, some parts of the doctrine are relatively clear. First, executive privilege is limited to communications made in the process of shaping policies and making decisions, not all communications in which members of the executive participate. Where the communications directly involve the president or White House staff members with broad and significant responsibility for providing the president with advice, the claim of privilege is at its strongest. The stronger version of privilege is sometimes called the presidential communications privilege and is distinguished from the weaker deliberative process privilege. Second, regardless of form, executive privilege does not provide absolute immunity against producing requested information. Instead, communications are presumptively privileged, but that presumption can be overcome by establishing a serious need for the information. In the Watergate cases, the special prosecutor established the need for Nixon's tapes because they contained evidence related to pending criminal trials. However, Where the information could be obtained through another source or is merely cumulative of other obtainable information, executive privilege will stand. Third, the courts are reluctant to step into an executive privilege dispute between Congress and the president. The courts will not resolve a dispute between these two branches unless the parties can establish that they have tried in good faith to reach an accommodation to obtain the materials. For Talking Feds, I'm Matthew Weiner.
0: Thank you Matthew Weiner for explaining executive privilege. Just the latest indication of Matthew Weiner's outsized and continuing influence on our culture. The song Lavender Haze from Taylor Swift's new album Midnights was taken from a Mad Men episode and was in broad currency in the 50s. It's part and parcel that is of Winers' historical perfectionism about the madman period that made that show so riveting. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
5: Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay. But what white Burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white Burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing, because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. Thanks
0: to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So why don't I complicate it even further with the point that you made. So uh, you said earlier on that maybe developments on the ground might provoke Trump to announce a candidacy in the short term rather than the long term. So we now have... The subpoena's been received, and that battle is now drawn. I wonder if you have any thoughts about where it's going, but you have the final hearing of the committee. This is more my um, Ballywick, but, you know, every day things are getting more serious for him, I think, in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Little things that I, as a former prosecutor, recognize are putting him in the crosshairs. So I wonder if you have any sense of the relationship Between the dynamic of the midterms and Donald Trump's fortunes over the next couple years?
2: Well, in some ways, he faces the same challenge that Bill Clinton faced in 1995. The number one job was to clear the field and to make sure nobody ran against him. I think Trump gets in for two reasons. One is to try to clear out some of the field before one of them catches fire. The second is, and this is a perverse political point of view. But these investigations, I think, help him. Remember, there will be multiple candidates. He does not have to get 50% of the Republican Party. And the core Republican Party believes that the entire system is rigged against them. And the only person who really understands them and has their back is Donald Trump. Now, out of the field, one of these other politicians will emerge, you know, and take the mantle. And if I were to... Trump's advisor, I would say, don't give them the oxygen. You know, get in and make them oppose him. Make Josh Hawley have to give a speech saying, I don't support Donald Trump. Make Tom Cotton give that speech. Make Ron DeSantis make that speech. Now, there's people who can make it. Liz Cheney can make it. But I don't know how Republican candidates will thread the needle of what's wrong with Donald Trump? You can have Trumpism without Trump. I don't see anyone who's done that.
1: Yeah. Just to jump in, I agree with that. There's two other factors that would sort of suggest that Trump is, is leaning in perhaps even more than he was, say, a year ago to running again. One is it's his economic model, right? The second, he is not a candidate For president, his fundraising goes down, his relevance goes down, we all stop talking about him so much, and it's hard to imagine that that's something he's willing to voluntarily do. And the same goes for. Seeding the field to a successor. That's not what he's all about. Rather than taking the win and saying, well, yes, Ron DeSantis is absolutely a Trumpist mini me made in my image. And I'm so delighted that I've reshaped the Republican Party. We all know that psychologically, that is not how Donald Trump is wired. And of course, he's immediately hostile and suspicious of Ron DeSantis. I made him. He's not really me. I'm me.
0: He trashed him in the Maggie Haberman book
1: that just fits with what we know, and we know an awful lot about the psychological profile of the former president. He also seems to believe, uh, and you can speak, Harry, to whether that is an accurate belief or not, that there's some sort of magical protection cloak that he gets by being a presidential candidate that might forestall an inevitable federal indictment in any of these cases. and. He may or may not be right about that, but he does definitely seem to hold that view that this is useful for him as he comes down to decision time for these federal prosecutors.
2: Can I make one quick point on that? Because I'll forget if I don't, and then I'll see to Josh. Oddly, I think he has it absolutely wrong. I think the establishment in Washington at the Justice Department is struggling with, can we indict a former president? Are we able to, as a country, use the judicial system no matter what he did? I think as a candidate trying to win again and be president again, I think that kind of solves that problem for people at the DOJ, people at the White House, the people who are going to be making these decisions, Atlanta, New York. All of these people are now saying he prospectively can hurt this country again.
3: We need to use every tool we have in the
2: judicial toolbox.
3: I'm not sure I agree and and it's more like I just don't know if uh, on Joe's last point like my gut tells me that being a candidate perversely does just you know kind of make prosecutors give it a second thought and get a little more nervous about it but Joe could be right I just don't know I could see that both ways but what I think is crystal clear is that the conventional wisdom and how Trump and his advisors see it, that there is no way that getting in the race in two weeks makes it more likely that he will be indicted or more likely that someone else will be the nominee. And since the man thinks with his brainstem, right, and it's kind of what maximizes safety and power for me, then of course he'll get in, because why wouldn't he? Just why would he not? It's a way to keep himself out of jail. and Fear and, of losing, but yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but then he comes up with some reason why he decides not to run. Right. But I, I don't think the Republican
2: base electorate care. In fact, it will energize him. Yeah. Energize the, the base
3: if he is indicted. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: He could run from jail. I, I, there's no legal impediment. <laughs> if he's indicted tomorrow and there's no trial for a year... I'm hearing three votes for Donald Trump candidate in twenty twenty four relatively soon in the next few months. Is that right? I agree. Yeah, One, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, there's uh, an end. We got a minute left for our talking five, where we take a question from a reader. We often answer it in five words or fewer. Today's question. Uh-huh. If you were Elon Musk, what's the first rule you would make or change on Twitter?
3: Resign as CEO, <laughs> but with the letters being words, so it's five.
2: This is a variation on Josh, uh, which is stop tweeting.
3: <laughs> well,
1: right, the current uh, best advice, best practice is never tweet. Right, so I'm not sure that is quite in line with the premise of the question. However, <laughs> it's a
0: pretty loose, loose <laughs> part of the episode, and I'm going with no takebacks on Twitter bans. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Josh, Joe, and Susan. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube. We're posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Tonight, Halloween, Monday, October 31st, the day we drop this episode, we'll be hosting our monthly Q&A with me live on Zoom for Patreon subscribers at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern Time so be sure to sign up if you'd like to take part in that live Q&A. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com contact, whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Laurel Feldner, Colena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to the great Matthew Weiner for explaining executive privilege. And our gratitude goes out, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.